Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I'm going to read from a book I've been intending to reference for a long time. And the subject matter has come up in many of my other talks, particularly with uh, Hoffman. We talked about the whole burnt over district in northern New York. But this book is titled History of the Abduction of William Morgan and the Anti-Masonic Excitement of 1826 to 1830, with many details and incidents never before published. The author is A.P. Bentley, and it was published in 1874. And I couldn't find a great copy. The intro has a couple pages that are that I couldn't read, but the rest of it is good. It's not a very long book, but it covers this anti-Masonic excitement. This is right around the time of the beginnings of Joseph Smith and Mormonism. And also this story involved William Seward, who ended up being the vice president uh, during the Civil War under Abraham Lincoln. And I think it's just an important timepiece. And I think William Morgan's wife ended up becoming allegedly one of Joseph Smith's plural wives. So he was involved in a lot of different things. And there were a lot of things happening in in that part of uh, Northern New York at that time, a lot of changes, religious changes, things like that. So I'll go ahead and read from this and I'll also read from the book that it references, a book that William Morgan had. The title of that book is Jachin and Boaz, so the two pillars of the temple. Jachin and Boaz, or Jachin and Boaz, or the Freemason's Catechism, which is subjoined to the Mason word by Samuel Pritchard, late member of a constituted lodge. And that's a very kind of a short book that goes into the history of Masonry. At that time, so it's kind of time stamp of the understanding of what Masonry was in their earliest part of the 19th century. So I'll begin. Preface. In December last, the author of this little volume wrote for the Free Press at Mount Pleasant, Iowa, a sketch of the history of the abduction of William Morgan and the excitement which followed that occurrence, detailing some incidents and facts which had never before been published. These sketches were published in the issue of that paper on December 26, 1873, and the three succeeding numbers of January following. The publishers, anticipating a demand for extra copies, issued some 200 surplus numbers to their regular editions, but these were soon exhausted, and so many orders came in that they could not fill that it was proposed by them to issue the work in this form. Being also urged by many friends, the authors carefully reviewed the publication in the newspaper form, rewriting it into in a more full and complete manner, adding many details and incidents not appearing in the first publication, and correcting all erroneous statements that would naturally occur in a hastily penned newspaper article. No one can more readily realize than I do that portions of this work may appear stale to some readers, as parts of it in substance have been in print for more than 40 years and issued in various forms, but a new generation has arisen since the days when these events took place, and many younger readers may never perhaps have read them in a form in which the matter could readily be understood. The events narrated here have been carefully gathered from the most reliable sources, many of which are detailed from an actual personal knowledge and from records published at the time of their occurrence. Nearly half a century has elapsed since the time of the disappearance of William Morgan and his supposed murder, and it is believed this work, reciting the principal scenes and the excitement which followed, will not prove uninteresting at this time. The time is not very remote when those who were in the midst of life and contemporary to these events have passed away and the history lost in the magazines. So there's a space here between six and seven. 
Magazines and periodicals, there was a statement, one of Elite's Lafitte's piratical band, which rendezvoused at, rendezvoused at the mouth of the Mississippi River and received amnesty for his crimes on condition of joining the army under Jackson in the defense of New Orleans. That he And this person deserted from New Orleans before 8th of January, 1815. And the story was first told in the American Freemason at about 1858 and supports its authenticity. And so... Um, it is well authenticated that Morgan was intemperate to a very immoderate degree and possessed of a, but a few moral principles or attributes, perhaps of honor or honesty. He had only a very limited edu education, but those who were personally acquainted with him at Rochester and Batavia concur that he was pleasant in his manners when sober and conducting towards his family and friends in those seasons like other men of similar habits. He had a wonderful faculty of getting into debt but none to get out. He was considered among his acquaintances what would at this, case, this day probably be called a dead beat. In 1821, he moved with his wife to Little York, now Toronto, Canada, and commenced the business of a brewer. He does not appear to have been very prosperous as he was constantly embarrassed and annoyed by importunate creditors. His brewery was soon burned and he was left a hopeless bankrupt. After this misfortune, he is reported as giving himself up wholly to his former habits of intoxication, and for a time his wife only subsisted on the charity of the neighbors. He stole away from his creditors who had obtained writs for his imprisonment, and being, a per being pursued, he resisted the officer and wounded him by a pistol shot. He came to Rochester, New York, and obtaining employment at his trade as a stonemason sent for his family. It is said that it was here he first conceived of the idea of publishing a pretended expose of Freemasonry, and thus improving his embarrassed circumstances in a financial point of view, by the sale of such a work. Before his family arrived in Rochester, he boarded at the house of a man by the name of Whitney, a brother of John Whitney, who was afterwards implicated, tried, and convicted for his abduction. While boarding at Whitney's, Morgan went to New York City for some purpose best known to himself, and on his return, he got very drunk at Albany, and in that condition went aboard a, of a canal boat, as the captain said, did not get sober till he reached Rochester. In his maudlin condition, he left at a hotel in Albany a package, which was found to consist of a copy of a book titled Jashin and Boaz, and also the works of Abbey Burrell, an exiled Jesuit from France, who published in England in 1799 a pretended exposition of Freemasonry and of the exoteric ritual of an order which had been suppressed in France and Germany called the Illuminati. The copy of Jashin and Boaz was of the edition printed in 1814, which was a reprint from several editions previously published in England. This package was returned to Morgan by Mr. Whitney, who was, also, who was at Albany soon after Morgan's return to Rochester. Morgan at some time, it is supposed, in Virginia, had received some of the degrees in masonry. It was doubtful however, that he had ever taken more than the first in a regular way, but it seems that he satisfied the members of the lodge at Rochester that he had received three and was admitted to the lodge. Emboldened by this success, he afterward convinced the chapter at Leroy that he had received six degrees and was there exalted to the royal arch degree. Morgan moved to Batavia in January 1826, and soon he and Miller were boon companions. Miller was not a mason, although he claimed he had received the interdepprentice degree some years before at Albany. A Masonic writer has described the Masonic standing of these two men as follows, quote, Miller had taken one step inside the door and Morgan had climbed over the wall. 
Morgan, after moving to Batavia, in induced Blanchard Powers, the grand lecturer of the state of New York, to give him a course of instruction, by which means he was enabled to pass himself without difficulty as a mason among all intelligent brethren. Morgan and Miller then entered into partnership to print a book, which the public was to be told disclosed the secrets of masonry in hopes to make a fortune out of the gaping curiosity of the vulgar. But as neither had the money to issue the work, they were ob obliged to let others into the firm. John Davids of Batavia and Russell Dyer of Rochester, having been applied to, readily saw it would be a good speculation and advanced the necessary means to put the work through the press. Morgan seems to have penetrated the mercenary motives of his partners and required of them to subscribe and swear to the following oath, quote, We and each of us do hereby most solemnly and sincerely promise and swear upon the holy evangelists of Almighty God that we will never divulge during our natural lives, communicate or make known to any person in the known world on our knowledge or any part thereof respecting William Morgan's intention communicated to us to publish a book on the subject of Freemasonry, neither by writing, marking, or insinuation, or any way divisible by, by man. Sworn and subscribed this 13th day of March, 1826, signed by John Davids, Russell Dyer, and D.C. Miller. In the summer of 1826, Miller issued a prospectus and announced in the columns of the Republican Advocate that Morgan had written a full and complete illustration of the esoteric part of Freemasonry, together with the secret ritual and lectures pertaining thereto, which would, when published, bring everything to light concealed by the members of the fraternity, and that it would be in a short time be issued from his press and be on sale at $1 per copy. This announcement created wonder and perhaps commotion in the various Masonic bodies wherever the paper circulated, but the greater portion of the respectable members of the fraternity treated the matter with silence and contempt, but others were not so wise. While there were those outside of the order elated that an opportunity would now be given to learn all about the mysteries of the inner chamber, which had been so long and carefully locked in the breasts of the initiated, there were some indiscreet members who determined to prevent the publication of the proposed book. About the 1st of August, by some means, Morgan discovered that something discovered something that made him suspicious that his three partners designed to swindle him. Therefore, he writes the following letter, quote, August 7th, 1826. Gentlemen, my note of this morning has not been answered. Further evasion and equivocation I will not submit to. Acknowledge you are not gentlemen, or I will expose you in twelve hours, unless you do as you have agreed to do. I am not a child. If you suppose I, I am, you are mistaken. I am a man and will not suffer myself to be imposed upon. You will have not acted as a gentleman. I am sorry to be compelled to say it. Every part of your conduct has been mysterious, and why so? My first impressions were that you had, were not honest men. Therefore, I wish to settle and have no more to do with you. If either of you feel hurt, call on me as gentlemen, and I will give you any satisfaction you wish. Signed, William Morgan. This bellicose epistle appears to have frightened the triumvirate speculators in book publishing, but Morgan was quieted by Dyer and Davids, executing to him a bond in the penal sum of $500,000, conditioned for the payment of one-fourth part of the sum, which should be received on the sale of the proposed book. Another partner was soon after received into the company for the sake of more capital. His name was David Johns, but it seems he did not furnish the capital as he agreed, as a quarrel again arose and came very near to breaking up the whole enterprise. Morgan, who I have heretofore remarked, had a peculiar faculty for getting into debt and never getting out, was at this time very much harassed by his creditors. On the 25th of July, he was arrested and confined within jail limits of Batavia at the suit of one of those creditors. 
it will be remembered that the law for imprisonment for debt had not at that time been abolished in New York. His partners were compelled to bail him out, but other creditors instituted proceedings and they became alarmed lest the amount of security they were compelled to assume would take up more than Morgan's share of the profits in the sale of the book. It was the policy of Miller and his Confederates, together with an anti-Masonic cabal, which had been already formed, to make it appear that the Masons were devising various schemes to prevent the publication of the book. Among other assertions, it was declared that DeWitt Clinton, the governor, then governor of New York, as the head of the grand chapter of the state, had issued a Masonic edict for suppressing the work, even at this expense of life. Monstrous as it, this was, it was believed, or pretended to be believed, by many who had a craving, morbid curiosity, to see what the book would contain. Instead of Governor Clinton ever having issued such an edict, the facts are a prominent Mason at Batavia, a warm, personal, and intimate friend of the governor's, wrote him a private letter asking his advice as to the duty of Masons in regard to the forthcoming book, provided it did not disclose any of the esoteric ritual of the institution. The reply of Governor Clinton was, for Masons, to let the subject alone and permit the book to take its course. He said that Morgan nor any other Mason or anti-Mason could injure or affect the principles and benevolent purposes of the institution, and that these were the vital force that it gave value. Owing to the confidential nature of this correspondence, it has never been published, but I have authority for saying that it was read in many of the lodges in Genesee and other counties. If all Masons had been as wise as the governor, Morgan and his Confederates would have lived thereafter as obscure as their former lives had been and have sunk into oblivion after their death. While Morgan and Miller, as they had announced, were at work on their publication in Miller's office on the 8th of September, a few inconsiderate members of the Masonic fraternity, in an evil hour, attempted a plan for its suppression. Before they knew what really was the character or extent of the intended disclosures, or that it would disclose anything in violation of Masonic obligations, 40 or 50 persons in disguise assembled at Miller's office with the avowed purpose of destroying the office if necessary and burning the manuscript and such portions of the work as might already be in print. This attempt failing, the office was set on fire and partially consumed. It should be stated here that the most respectable members of the lodge and chapter at Batavia condemned these proceedings and joined in a printed handbill offering a reward of $100 for the apprehension of the incendiaries. It has been claimed by many, if not all the Masonic writers upon this part of the Morgan history, that these unlawful proceedings were instituted by Miller and his partners to increase the excitement and advance the sale of the work. If such were the facts, it must be acknowledged they were eminently successful, because the parties which composed this mob were undoubtedly Masons, at least the public so understood it. The crisis soon came. In May 1826, Morgan visited certain influential Masons in Canandaigua, Ontario County, under the pretense of traveling in the southern states, induced them to further instruct him and perfect him in the rites and ceremonies of the order. About the 1st of September, these Masons learned of his intended expose and were indignant at the infamous conduct of the man and naturally desired to get even with him. While at Canandaigua, Morgan had borrowed a shirt and cravat, but conveniently forgot to return them. On the 10th of September, and an information was filed, with Sheldon Esquire, a justice of the peace at Canandaigua, charging Morgan with stealing a shirt and cravat from Mr. Kingley. A warrant for his arrest was issued in due form directing any constable or the sheriff of the county to bring said Morgan before said justice to answer said complaint. 
and to be dealt with according to law. The warrant was first given to N.G. Cheesebro, coroner of the county, but he turned it over to Holloway Hayward, a constable, who proceeded to Batavia, about 50 miles distance, made the arrest, and brought his prisoner to Canandaigua, arriving there on the evening of the 11th. On the trial of the justice... On the trial, the justice decided that borrowing a shirt and cravat was not larceny, and Morgan was discharged. But those who had undertaken to get Morgan into jail found another remedy to accomplish it. Morgan was indebted for board on his former visit to Canandaigua to Mr. Ackley, a hotel keeper, who had, who had assigned his claim to another party. This party, immediately on the discharge of Morgan for larceny, swore out a claim against him in debt. A coppice ad respondendum was issued upon which proceedings a judgment was rendered and execution forthwith with issued. The laws of New York, as before stated, then authorized the imprisonment for debt. All executions commanded the sheriff or constable if sufficient property of the judgment debtor could not be found to satisfy the judgment and costs to take the body of the defendant to the common jail of the county, there to be confined until said judgment and costs are paid, or he be discharged according to law. Morgan was taken to the jail about 11 o'clock at night on the 11th day of September, 1826, and handed over to Israel R. Hall, deputy sheriff and keeper of the jail. He resided with his family in the prison, placed in a cell, and locked up. There he remained till the next evening, evening, September 12th. About 7 o'clock on this evening, Mr. Lowton Lawson called the jail, as appears by the testimony of Mrs. Mary W. Hall, wife of the jailer, and desired to see Morgan. Mr. Hall was absent, and she conducted Lawson to Morgan's cell, where he had some private conversation with him. Miss Hall said she heard Lawson ask Morgan if he would go home with him, if he would pay the debt and take him out. Morgan said he would. Lawson then offered to pay the amount of the execution, but she declined, afraid Mr. Hall would be injured, and told Lawson he must go out and find her husband. He went away, but returned soon and offered to leave considerable more money than was sufficient to pay the claim if she would let Morgan go. She still declined, and Colonel Sawyer and Mr. Cheesebro came and told her it was all right when she con- consented. She then unlocked the prison door, and Morgan and Lawson marched out arm-in-arm into the street. Before she got the jail door locked, she heard the cry of murder once or twice, and then, on looking out, saw Morgan struggling between two men. They forced him along the sidewalk east of the jail and were soon hidden from her view by the next house. She then saw a carriage pass the jail, going east, which shortly after returned going west. Quote, it was moonlight and near nine o'clock when Morgan was taken from the jail, unquote. Mr. Lawson, who took so leading a part in the discharge of Morgan, according to the testimony of Mrs. Hall, was a farmer residing near Canandaigua. Mr. Cheesebro and Mr. Sawyer were businessmen in Canandaigua. Mr. Lawson, who took so leading a part in the discharge of Morgan, according to the testimony of Miss Hall, was a farmer residing near Canandaigua. Mr. Cheesebro and Colonel Sawyer were businessmen in Canandaigua, and the first kept a hat and cap store, the latter a saddle and harness maker. They were all highly respectable citizens, of whom no discreditable act had ever been previously charged against them. The trial and conviction of these three men will be referred to hereafter. As Miss Hall states, Morgan left the jail with Lawson, Cheesebro, and Sawyer. There was also another person who took part in the transaction, who was called at the time Dr. Foster, but who was never afterwards discovered or identified. He was a stranger to Miss Hall and also to Dr. Richard Wells, who was on the sidewalk in front of the jail and saw Morgan as he was put into the carriage. 
These two witnesses said they had never before seen him and never had since. The mysterious abductor is a mystery to this day. The testimony of others beside Miss Hall showed that when they left the jail with Morgan, they walked a few steps down the street where the latter was forced into a carriage and driven out of the village. The question of his voluntary entrance into the carriage, where that violence was used to make him enter, the evidence is very conflicting. Mr. Lawson claimed that Morgan desired to go and agreed willingly to be taken to Canada, away from Miller and his other partners in the contemplated book publication. He said that Morgan reproached himself bitterly for suffering himself to be the dupe of these men who had only made a tool of him for their own benefit. Lawson also said upon leaving the jail that Morgan entered the carriage willingly and made no outcry. But Miss Hall, it will be seen, says she heard the cry of murder and is confirmed by Dr. Wells, then a highly respected physician of Canandaigua, and who happened to be near the jail at the time, and also by a citizen living next door to the jail. Dr. Wells testified that he heard the cry of murder twice and that Mr. Cheesebro told him on his inquiring what the matter was, that they had been liberating a man in jail on an execution of his, and that he was taken with the jail piece but did not like to go. The other witness said he saw a man forced into the carriage. On the other hand, Hiram Hubbard, the owner and driver of the carriage, testified that he observed, quote, no force exercised to put anyone into the carriage, heard no cry of murder, unquote. Lawson, Cheeseboro, and Sawyer confirmed Hubbard that no force was used. The general opinion among the friends of the abductors was that the statement of Lawson was correct so far that Morgan did agree while in jail and was anxious to go to Canada in order to get away from his partners. But the moment he reached freedom from the prison bars, he suddenly changed his mind and refused to comply with the compact. But that Lawson, Cheesebro, Sawyer, and Dr. Foster determined he should fulfill the bond. But it appears he became subsequently reconciled to the wishes of his abductors as during the whole journey to the frontier, there was no restraint put upon his movements and seemed to be entirely free to go where he pleased until locked again in another prison hereafter mentioned. Journey, The journey to Niagara. The testimony of Hubbard, the owner and driver of the carriage, was that he was hired to go to Rochester and take five passengers, that he proceeded to Rochester and got there about daylight and went about three miles beyond where he was told his services were no longer needed. And when he returned, he was subsequently paid by Cheesebro. The carriage, after taking in Morgan near the jail, was driven down Jail Street about 60 rods east of the prison, near an old frame building, which was called Mechanics Hall, where four men were taken up. When it turned round, repassing the jail and on reaching Main Street, near the courthouse and townhouse, turned north. At Ackley's Tavern, at the north end of Main Street, a man in a sulky joined the carriage, and the two vehicles left the village. A few miles out, the carriage overtook John Whitney on foot. This gentleman got up and rode with the driver to Victor. Here the driver halted at Beach's Tavern and watered his horses, and some of the party went into the house and took a drink. The driver also stopped at Menden and Pittsford and gave water to his horses, but no one got out of the carriage at either place, and as stated before, arrived at Rochester about daylight. This was as far as Hubbard, who had been employed to convey the party, but after a consultation, he was requested to go about three miles further to Hanford's Landing. He complied, and on reaching that point about 80 rods beyond Hanford's house near a piece of woods, he discharged his passengers and returned. Another carriage from Rochester was just behind, which took up Hubbard's passengers and proceeded west on the Ridge Road. This road, so-called, runs the apex of a considerable ridge and extends from the Genesee River at Hanford's to the Niagara, about 75 miles. The horses were chained at regular relays. And about sundown, the carriage arrived at Wright's Tavern, 
three miles north of Lockport, where Eli Bruce, sheriff of Niagara County, met the party and who then seemed to take command of the future movements. At nine o'clock, the company arrived at Molyneux's Tavern near Lewiston, where a Mr. Brown, who had been driver for been driver from Ridgeway, discharged his load and returned. But another carriage was procured to go to Youngstown, which was driven by Colonel Kings about six miles from Lewiston. The colonel here joined the party, and about half a mile from Fort Niagara, the party left the carriage and proceeded on foot to the fort. This old fort had something of a historical record and romantic interest attached to it. It was first built by the French prior to the French and Indian War of 1756, captured by the British during that war, and retaken by the French. During our revolution, it was occupied by the British troops, but fell into the hands of our government after the peace of 1783. In the War of 1812, an expedition from Canada crossed over and captured Youngstown, and the fort surrendered, but was subsequently recaptured by our forces. The fort stands upon the point where the river opens into Lake Ontario. The fort had been occupied as a garrison for U.S. troops until the previous May, when the troops were ordered to other points, and the government property left in charge of one Edward Giddings, the keeper of the lighthouse at that point. The last of Morgan. When Bruce, King, and two others with Morgan arrived at the fort, they were joined by Giddings and all went across the river in the ferry boat to the Canada shore, but not finding the parties they expected returned to this side, and Morgan was put into the magazine within the fort and locked up. The old magazine had been in its day a massive structure with walls of seven to eight feet of solid masonry, but had become at the time Morgan was confined there, as well as the fort, very much dilapidated. Final disappearance of Morgan. By the testimony in the trials that took place afterward, there can be no reasonable doubt that Morgan was taken, either by his own will or by force, to this magazine and there confined. But what became of him, how he was disposed of, or how he disposed of himself, no authentic account has ever been known or divulged to the public. And the mystery is just as great now as it was 46 years ago. If there were any any who did know, and it is hardly possible otherwise, they have or will let the secret die with them. It is most probable in some manner he ceased to live, although there are thousands of instances of persons in his situation and of his standing who have wished to leave the impression of their death that they might emigrate or transmigrate and come out unknown and unquestioned under another name and to enact another part in life. For two or three years, reports and rumors were now and then circulated in the newspapers that Morgan had been seen and recognized in Canada, living under an assumed name. Then he was located in some country in Europe, in Mexico, California, and other parts of the world. It was positively asserted at one time that Morgan had been actually found and was living as a high dignitary in Turkey in 1831, where he had become a matre maitre d'école to a class of oriental musulman at Smyrna, and was teaching the English and French languages to the sultan's officials. Even the vessel in which he had sailed from the United States was given the brig Minerva, owned by Western of Duxbury, Mass. The captain's name was Martin Waterman. In the National, National Freemason of 1867, this report was republished as a probable solution for the Morgan mystery. But we should hardly suppose that any intelligent person would for a moment have been deceived by such an evident absurdity. Morgan must have been from all accounts, when he disappeared, over 50 years of age, and had never received anything more than the simple rudiments of an English education. It would therefore be the height of folly to suppose that he could in four years have learned the Turkish language and qualified himself to teach even the English language, to say nothing about the French, 
of which he did not probably know the first accent. In July 1829, one Ezra Sturgis Anderson of Hollowell, Maine, published over his own signature a statement that he, in the previous April, had met Morgan at Mount Desiree Island in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, that he had known him in 1825 and that he could not be mistaken as he had a conversation with him, and that Morgan told him he had been living in Newfoundland, that Miller had in his hands money belonging to him in the amount of $20,000, that if he did not remit to him soon, he would return to Batavia, etc., there was but little credit, credit given to such statements, whether made over the signatures of individuals or having no particular paternity. Many were probably invented by some joker, knowing that the public excitement was at such a pitch that the most improbable story would attract attention. But there were lack, no lacking of those who believed that Morgan got himself kidnapped, taken to the frontier, but then safely departed the country, leaving the impression behind that he had been murdered in order to get up the very excitement which followed to enhance the sale of his book. But this was not the general impression. The public, which was familiar with all the circumstances, had an abiding conviction that he was murdered. Even among the fraternity who held the institution in great veneration, there were not only a few who admitted that he'd been put out of the way by indiscreet and bad members of the order, and that if such was the case, they were not only base criminals by the civil law, but had heinously violated every principle of Masonic obligations. And until there was an indiscriminating vengeance inaugurated against all who belonged to the order, they were as forward as the most violent opposers to bring the guilty to justice. The thousand and one theories in regard to the disposable, disposal of Morgan were, that were originated by both friends and foes were wild and sometimes incredible, yet many of them seemed sufficient to produce a conviction. That those who took so active a part in taking him to Niagara their high-standing and unblemished reputations in the communities where they were known forbade all candid individuals for a moment to believe they were guilty of murder, but under the intense excitement and fury of the, of the persecution of everybody connected with Masonic bodies, reason was overset, and the fanaticism of the hour was their only excuse for their violence. This many of them acknowledged after the excitement was over. But while the excitement was in progress, this class could not be made to even admit of a possibility that Morgan was not horribly murdered and his body sunk in the Niagara River or the adjacent waters of Lake Ontario. The theory among most of them was that he kept a close prisoner. He was kept a close prisoner. The theory among them was that he was kept a close prisoner in the magazine from the night of the 13th of September until the 20th of the same month without much or any food or water. That at the meeting of Masons for the installation of a chapter at Lewiston on the 14th, the subject of his disposal was discussed. By some, it was contended that the, this meeting was held for no other purpose than to consider how he should be put out of the way, that it was solemnly agreed that there he should be put to death, and all the details arranged to hide the dark deed from the public gaze. The ruffians chosen and required to execute the sentence pronounced that these ruffians did perform the, the behest of the conclave, and on the night of the 20th, Morgan was taken from his prison already half dead for want of sustenance and from confinement, was dispatched and his body sunk in the deep. This theory, we say, was one of the most believed by the opponents of masonry during the excitement, although many others were formed and reiterated among all classes of people still more ridiculous. That several hundred respectable Freemasons who were present at the Lewiston installation could unanimously conspire, plan, and execute a heinous murder of a human being, it is strange that so many could have honestly believed. 
but undoubtedly they did and were so firmly convinced of its truth that they would not listen or permit it to be doubted. Yet if they had reflected a moment, they must have discovered the improbability of such an enormity without its certain detection and being fully brought to light. There were all classes of men, members of the fraternity at the Lewiston installation, and the meeting had been appointed months before by an official of the Grand Chapter, when there could have been no knowledge of Morgan or his intended book. This meeting, an ordinary one, common to the order, on like occasions in organizing new chapters, and the usual ceremonies with procession, etc., took place. Among that large throng of royal archmasons, with one single exception, all positively declared that during the private session, the name of Morgan, or his intended book, was not mentioned, and it may be easily inferred that not more than four or five knew that Morgan was confined to Fort Niagara, even if they had ever heard of him at all. If Morgan's death had been decreed and adjudged in that assembly, and his execution afterwards consummated on the 20th, was it possible for the deed to have been forever concealed from the public? Many of those who were at the Lewiston meeting and were present at all private sessions of the lodge and chapter there held, afterwards during the excitement, renounced masonry, but everyone except Edward Giddings solemnly averred the subject was not mentioned. Had there been anything of the kind, it is impossible to believe that it would not have been disclosed when we remember with what zeal the anti-Masonic committee labored to prove that the horrible, horrible tragedy of murder was there arranged. On the other hand, the theory of those who still cherished the principle of Masonry, as well as those who were not Masons but were opposed to the persecution of the order for the misdeeds of a few misguided members, was that a great outrage against the law had been committed, for which the perpetrators deserved condign punishment. They were divided, however, as to whether an actual murder had been committed. Many prominent and influential Masons believed as firmly as the anti-Masons that Morgan had been murdered, but knew that the order or anything more than a few members of it were not guilty of the enormous crime, while the antis charged the whole fraternity as accessories. Others believed that the whole conspiracy and abduction was gotten up by Miller and his confederates to stamp the impress of truth upon the pretended disclosures of Morgan to add to the sale of the work and that Giddings was one of their tools and who shared in the profits of the venture. But all was speculation and the truth has never been made public. We will give the opinion of two distinguished Masons made up long after the excitement had ceased and the order had been fully reinstated in localities where it had been completely obliterated during that period and could have no object in screening any members or the institution from deserved censure. Dr. J.W.S. Mitchell of Missouri, in his, quote, History of Freemasonry and Masonic Digest, unquote, thus sums up his opinion of the Morgan affair, quote, that William Morgan was murdered, we sincerely believe, and that one or more Masons were concerned and participated in the hellish deed, we have no reason to doubt. But what, for what purpose? Was it to defend or protect Masonry from the influence of a book, a copy of which could be had for a few pennies in nearly all the bookstores of England and America? No, but for the sole purpose of putting money in their purse. What if rumor did say that Morgan was about to publish an expose of Masonry? We doubt whether... Any honest mason was permitted to see the original copy, whether manuscript or the book, Jachin and Boaz. And hence the masons could not know what was, it was, what was about to be published. And surely no sane man would suffer himself to be guilty of murder upon a bare suspicion of treachery. In any view we can take on the, of the subject, we can find no reason to fix the crime of Morgan's murder upon any except those who were base enough to participate with him in the scheme and who sought money as the reward of their villainy, unquote.
Dr. Robert Morris, well known throughout the Western states as a distinguished instructor and Masonic author, thus furnishes his conclusions of, quote, who killed Morgan, unquote. Quote, our own surmise, which, after a careful perusal of all the testimony and much questioning of the remaining actors in the abduction who still survive, may perhaps be as good as any other, is that Morgan was abundantly supplied with money by those who had expended so much and ran such risks to separate him from Miller and his Confederates that he was assisted to pass into Canada the scene of his former adventures, where among a rough and lawless population, he met the fate likely to befall a drunken boasting fellow whose pockets were sufficiently well-lined to render him desirable prey, unquote. We might add another theory of a Mason who is familiar with all the circumstances and is at least as reasonable as any other. It is this, that Morgan agreed, as positively affirmed by those engaged in his abduction, to be carried to Canada away from Miller and his partners, who he had claimed had not acted honorably with him, and that with the promise of being helped into a good business in Canada, where Miller could not find him, he being as anxious to go as those misguided Masons that were, were that he should, that certain zealous Canadian Masons received him and passed him along to Quebec, and there shipped him on a man of war, or perhaps a merchant vessel bound to some distant land, and that he either died a natural death or fell overboard and was drowned at sea before the vessel returned, and having been registered under an assumed name, was never heard of more by those who had known him. This, of course, was all speculation, but he is entitled to just as much credit as any other theory which has ever before been published. We will now proceed to narrate events of what occurred after Morgan disappeared. The public inquire, where is Morgan? The first inquiry came from Batavia, where Morgan had resided and where his family still lived. The mystery attending his departure, the circumstance of his having not been heard from, the attempted mobbing of Miller's office, and the partial incendiary burning of the same a few days after, and rumors afloat that he had forcibly been taken to Niagara and there murdered, excited an interest in the people of Batavia and very properly and justly made an investigation necessary. With a view to ascertain the circumstances in relation to Morgan's being taken from the jail in Canandaigua, an agent was sent thither to make inquiries. A number of affidavits were procured, which established the fact apparently that Morgan was arrested in violation of law after his discharge from prison on the 12th of September and against his will, conveyed from thence in a carriage prepared for that purpose by force to the Niagara frontier. Here was the starting point for the furious excitement which followed. Reports and rumors in exaggerated forms continued to reach Batavia until it was the popular belief that Morgan had been murdered in cold blood. The thunders of popular indignation began to roll. It was at first in low and solemn murmurs, but destined in a short time to increase in power. It emitted as yet no sparks because no particular object had been selected on which its bolts could descend. The inquiry every, everywhere was made, where is Morgan? But no answer had been given. 